basically. Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fido? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. ASD? NRAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. Today on Terranauts, we have a special guest and a special episode. Mac Evans has been on the program before. In fact, I think he may have been my second guest. Mac has a long pedigree as a Terranaut. As you may remember, he is a former president of the Canadian Space Agency, and he also had key roles in setting up the Canadian Space Agency and in negotiating the treaty that founded the International Space Station. But today, we are not here to talk about that. Today, we're here to talk about Mac's earlier career as a Terranaut, and uh, we're going to talk about a mission called the Communications Technology Satellite, also known as Hermes at the time, and usually referred to as CTS these days. Mac was a systems group manager during the development of the satellite, but more importantly for our story, he was the mission director for satellite operations of the satellite once the launch phase was over. And he has tapes. Tapes of the actual conversations that went on in the uh, multi-mission space operations center during the mission. Now, this kind of thing is actually pretty rare. Uh, It's not uncommon to have recordings, for instance, of conversations between the ground and the spacecraft. You can listen to those all the time. But it is actually a lot rarer to have a record of what was actually said in the control center. In fact, the only instance I've found of that at NASA is actually the Apollo 11 mission was recorded. All of the voice loops are recorded. It's really fascinating. You can, you can listen to them. But it is actually not common to hear what's going on in MCC after the fact. So um, with these recordings, we're actually going to get a glimpse of what it's like to work in a mission control center, and uh, particularly when things don't go exactly as planned. But um, first, we need to set the scene a little bit. So uh, Mac, welcome to Terranauts. Thanks, Ian. It's great to be back and to chat with you about what I consider to be a unsung project of the early Canadian space program. Yeah, sure. Uh, absolutely. I, I don't think a lot of people, CTS is not something that actually rolls off the tongue if you ask people about Canada's achievements in space, but that's kind of unfortunate. Um, but let's let's get the basics sorted out and talk a little bit about CTS so we understand exactly what was going on before we jump into the Mission Control Center. Um, when did you start working on CTS? I started working on CTS in 1970. And what were they doing at the time? Well, they were assembling a joint government industry prime contractor team at the Communications Research Center just west of Ottawa. Um, The project itself was in what we now call the preliminary design phase. Mm -hmm. Um, The MOU with NASA that actually authorized the joint program with them had not yet been signed. It was not signed until 1971. So MOU is a Memorandum of Understanding. Uh, yeah. and why did we need a, a Memorandum of Understanding with NASA? Well, it was a joint program with NASA, and uh, these programs are, are governed by MOUs. Um, as you know, uh, the, the Alouette program was a joint program with NASA. Right, right. And it, it included two Alouette satellites and a follow-on program of three ICES, the International Science and Ionospheronic and the leader of that program uh, in Canada was John Chapman. Right. And, but these, these were scientific satellites uh, aimed at understanding the ionosphere 
which was the only way, only means we had of communicating between the north and south of Canada at the time. Right. But while these were scientific satellites, they were clearly aimed at improving communications throughout Canada. Right. And we had signed MOUs with NASA on those programs and that program. So we all know in the history of Canada's space program that Alibut One was launched in 1962. Right. But interestingly enough, this was just two weeks after President Kennedy's famous speech at Rice University where he announced the Apollo program. And it occurred, more importantly, actually, it, it occurred just one year before Hughes Aircraft Company launched SINCOM 2. Right. Which, for the first time, demonstrated the value of communicating via satellites in geosynchronous orbit. So while we had the Alouette ISIS program aimed at understanding the ionosphere as a mechanism of, of long-distance communications in Canada, the technology was bypassing us, and the and the geosynchronous satellite communications systems were, were clear that they were going to be the technology of the future and something of great importance to Canada. So this led actually to uh, the government conducting a review of its fledgling space program in 1967. This review was led by none other than John Chapman and the famous Chapman report that came out of that review recommended that Canada's space program should concentrate on satellite communications. Right. It also called for a space agency of some sort, but that came later. <laughs> yeah, quite a bit later. So 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 basically at the time NASA and Russia or NASA the US and Russia are competing to see who's going to get humans into space and maybe go to the moon and so uh, what the Chapman report said is okay let them do that. Um Canada should work on figuring out how to use space to improve things back here on earth. That's absolutely correct. And that's been the fundamental if you look at the Chapman report that's the fundamental policy, a fundamental tenet of that report, there were right. two legs of that report. One was, we should be using space to meet needs here on Earth. Yes. Two, we should develop in Canada a space industry capable of delivering on those needs. Okay. Okay. Um, now, in, in, in 69, they, to prove how sort of serious they were, the government actually um, founded a new uh, Department of Communications, right? That's correct. In 1969, I was working at what was the Defense Research Board at the time. Right. And the Communications Research Center was called the Defense Research Telecommunications Establishment. So the Canadian Space Program at that time was run, was a military program. Yes, yes. Um, so anyways, uh, the government did realize uh, the importance of communications technology, not just satellite, but communication technology generally to Canada and did create a brand new government department called the Department of Communications. Right. And none other than John Patman was a senior executive in that department. Um, it also at that same time adopted a new telecommunication act. Yes. That had as a stated goal of ensuring that all Canadians, no matter where they lived, yes, had equal access to telecommunication services. Okay. And and that was a big deal at the time. Because the nature of the way satellite communications at the time was going was that you really needed a lot of ground infrastructure to make it work, right? Like you needed sort of a house with a house-sized antenna to be able to talk to satellites on orbit at the time. Yeah, that's correct. And, and the original Telesat satellites that were launched in the early 70s yes. were basically major, you know, hub-to-hub communication systems located near, but not in near um, major cities. Yes. 
and they use these large uh, ground stations, you know, 20, 30 meter dishes, which were not suitable for consumer use. Oh, no. And, and you basically, you needed to be a big company with a big customer base to be able to pay for the infrastructure. So it was really, uh, if we kept going that way, we were only going to be talking between major urban centers and it was really going to be big companies that were that were the ones providing that that service rather than being able to serve remote communities in the north and things like that, right? That is true. And so, I mean, the Telsat system uh, provided for those of us who lived in southern Canada with, uh, you know, live via satellite coverage. Sure, I remember. Events around the world, but people in rural remote areas were left out. And the telecommunications um, policy, the act, uh, made it very clear that it should be the aim of Canada to provide equal services to all Canadians, no matter where they live. That became a fundamental premise for the communications right. technology satellite program. Okay. Okay. And so, so, so why was CTS necessary in order to be able to achieve that goal of kind of ensuring equal access? What was it about CTS that you were trying to do? Well, we had this new government policy and uh, through the Telecommunications Act. We had this new Department of Communications. We had Chapman as a senior executive in that department. Right. And um, he realized that, you know, the new developments in, in community, satellite communications technology could allow direct-to-home satellite broadcasting to a small right. district anywhere in Canada. So that was his, he had the foresight to understand that that was coming down the road and would be possible. And so he set about to get NASA and the government of Canada to agree to take the last satellite of the Alouette ISIS series, yes. which is, we had an agreement with NASA for these five satellites, right. four had been launched. Okay. And instead of launching a fifth science satellite, he got both the government and NASA to agree to convert that program into a communications technology satellite program, which would demonstrate these new technologies that he saw coming down the road and would be able to demonstrate the ability of satellite communications to deliver tele television broadcasts to small one meter dish antennas. Right. Cause we, we kind of, you know, we take that for granted, the whole direct to home things, not as big anymore, but, but um, you know, having an antenna that you could talk to a satellite with is something we kind of got used to, but that was, that was a completely uh, untested theory um, in 1970. And so, so you were targeting being able to talk to a satellite. Instead of using a 20-meter dish, you wanted to use basically a one-meter dish. Um, you know, what had to happen in order to be able to make that a reality? Well, the laws of physics, eh? <laughs> if, you want to, <laughs> if you want to do that sort of thing, you have to put more power into the satellite. Okay. And this meant... Um, going to a new frequency band, right. which would allow you to uh, access, you could go to places where you couldn't go with the lower frequency bands that were, that were being used at the time. Right. It meant um, really increasing the size and the efficiency of the solar cells right. power system on the spacecraft. Yeah. At that time, communication satellites were drums, they were yes. spinning. Yes. And so basically only one third of the solar cells on the drum were facing the sun. So you, you were faced with a quite an efficiency hit there. So this led us to thinking about 
putting up a solar panel, a sail, solar panel, right. which would constantly be pointed at the sun. So you get full efficiency there. Uh, while the spacecraft body itself was kept facing the Earth, so that the communications antennas on it would be always pointed to the Earth. So this led to a new configuration for a communication satellite, which meant going from a spinning stabilized control system, yes, basically a top, yes. to uh, a three-axis stabilized spacecraft. And so we also pioneered the use of three-axis stabilization and geosynchronous. Yeah, so I mean, we talked about I talked about that a little in the last episode. Which, if anybody's listening hasn't listened to uh, punctuating equilibrium, you want to go do that. Um, yeah, so I mean, but be clear. So people remember in 1970, a geosynchronous satellite was essentially a drum with a little hat on it that was an antenna, and it spun around, uh, and it was covered in in solar panels. The modern image of a satellite, which is, you know, with sort of a cube as the body with these big wings of solar arrays that spread out from it, and then antennas pointing back at the Earth, that that was entirely a creation, essentially, of the communications technology satellite. That was the picture of a communication satellite that you guys had when you were building CTS, right? Yes. Now, we pioneered that concept, and that now, of course, is the common configuration for all geosynchronous yeah, communication. Yeah, I, I hadn't realized until we talked about this getting ready for this episode that that, that was the point where the kind of modern prototype of this of the communication satellite was born. Um so um it sounds easy to say that. Yeah, we just got to make some build, build some big solar arrays and make a three axis stabilized satellite, but that's there was actually a lot in there that was uh I mean people have been talking about it, but n you know none of those component technologies had ever been done, right? On orbit. That's correct. And getting onto the solar panel, just for a minute, it had to be packaged up like an accordion during long, and then extended to this long um, panel, two panels, and it used Canada's favorite um, space mechanism, the storable. Oh, all right. So member. We we got our we got our members working again. That it so that. Uh, that the solar arrays on, on CTS were were pushed out and and held tight by the two stems right. on the on the satellite. So <clears throat> that's um well, and that's that's kind of non-trivial because solar panels, especially at the time, not exactly the robust remote most robust things in the world, right? No, They're, oh, and uh, and I mean it's very similar to the solar panels that are on space station. They had to be extended once they were launched and installed. So it's the same idea so so but actually how how many would you say new brand new technologies had to be had to work on cds and or a cts in order to be able to demonstrate the the fundamental principle of being able to communicate with a small dish on the ground well we had to do the high power um solar rays to provide the basic dc power yes to power a very high power tube yeah that was part of NASA's contribution, actually, to the program. Yes, they had a, they developed a 200 watt tube, where the normal transmitter tube in a communication satellite at the time was 20 watts. Right. So it was 10 times as powerful. Okay. Um, we had to develop this three-axis control system for the satellite. Um, we had to. Um, Transfer actually from a spinning satellite because the rocket 
left us in uh and it's when we were separated from the right we were spinning at 60 rpm and we had to go from that to um three axis stabilization that was a complex process right and um you know we pioneered this 12 14 gigahertz uh band which is used all the time now so these were these were firsts that uh, ccs uh, right. and, and if any one of them hadn't worked then the whole thing wouldn't have worked that's correct that's correct it was what like just to give everybody a sense of it uh what do you think would have happened if if any of those things hadn't worked and cts had kind of you know failed what what do you think would have happened to the canadian space program i mean this is speculation but i i've always been of the opinion that um our program is so small uh it's um we do a lot we punch above our weight there's no question but this the political system i think in canada could not stand a failure right and so um we'll get down to this when we listen to the tapes but um as mission director i i felt an enormous amount of pressure to make sure this mission succeeded right. because right. it wasn't just um that the new communications technologies that we were testing out it was um the development of a space industry that right was right able to set stuff around the world it uh, meant jobs in canada it um it would give the government continued confidence to continue with the space program. But had we had a failure, I, I was convinced that it would have had dramatic impact on the space program and we would not be talking about the type of program that we have today. Okay, so no pressure then. Yeah. Um, so without going into the details of the development program, which I have no doubt had its fascinating moments trying to get all of that stuff to work for the first time on orbit. Um, let's skip ahead to the mission itself because that's really what we want to talk about today. Um, now, this was very much, as you pointed out, an international program, um, which always adds a little layer of extra excitement to a program, as you and I both know. Um, so can you just give us an overview of how the whole setup was organized between between you guys and, and NASA? Sure. So NASA was responsible for this 201 tube that I okay. talked about. Um, they were also responsible for providing the launch vehicle. Right. And all of the orbital dynamics uh, required to deliver the satellite to geostationary orbit. Right. And then they, as a re and because of their participation, they got 50% of the user time for their own experiments. Sure. And we were responsible for the design and manufacture of the satellite. Right. Testing it. Uh, and all satellite operations once the satellite had been separated from the rocket. Mm. And and we got fifty percent of the user time. So the satellite was always under the control of Canadians. Yes, and we relied on NASA to get us into our proper orbit uh, in geostationary. But but it was a little bit complicated because I mean when it's just the booster launching the satellite, it's NASA. When it's just the satellite operating in orbit, it's a Canadian satellite. But the Apogee engine on the satellite is what NASA has to use to achieve the orbit. So there's a phase in the operation there when you're, it's your satellite, but NASA is telling you what they need you to do to make it work or something, right? That, that is correct. And that's why um, we, uh, when we were in the Mission Control Center in Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland, uh, for the, what I'll call the NASA phase of the mission, Yeah. 
we had to supply the spacecraft knowledge in that control center because we were the ones that authorized any commands to the satellite. And they were the ones who determined what those commands could be for orbital dynamics point of view. So um, that's how that worked. And then when we moved, so we, the Canadians were in this control center in, in Goddard. Right. Once we were on station and ready to go into the three axis, you know, the deploy of the array, the arrays and three axis stabilization, right. the control center was in Canada. So from that, from once we were on station to the rest of the mission, the control center was in CRC in in in, in Ottawa. And and for those who don't know, um, getting to geostationary orbit is is kind of a multi phase process, right? You don't just blast off and go straight there. No, in, in with the rockets that were available then, um, the, the third stage of the rocket was a Delta rocket. Um, deliver the spacecraft spinning at 60 RPM okay. to give it stability into what is called a transfer orbit. And this transfer orbit had a perigee of about 185 kilometers and an apogee of 36,000 kilometers, which is the height of a geosynchronous uh, orbit. The big long ellipse that comes yeah, back. The big long ellipse. Okay. And um, in, buried inside the satellite, in fact, weighing about a half of the total satellite weight, yes, uh, was a solid propellant rocket motor, ah. which is essentially the fourth stage of the rocket, if you will. And so we, we purchased that and put it inside the satellite. And... Um, and so that's how when that that so that motor had to be fired at an apogee in the right direction in order to get us into the geosynchronous orbit. So when we um, when we were had been separated from the launch vehicle and were getting we had to get ready for this apogee motor firing. And to do yeah. that, we had to reorient the spinning axis of this satellite. Yes, and that required pulses from our reaction control system, which was this uh, system we had on board to, to control the attitude of the satellite. So the first thing that we did once we'd separated from the rocket was get ourselves ready to reorient the satellite so that we could fire the, the apogee motor at the right time and at the right angle to get us into the proper geosynchronous orbit. Okay, okay. so um, so the RCS system was was, Kind of a rocket, but it's a funny kind of rocket. It's, it's what we call a monopropellant engine. Um, and can you just explain a little bit how the RCS system uh, worked? Yes. Yeah, so we had. You're right. It was the the fuel for this RCS system was hydrazine, which uh, when it was passed over a catalyst, created a major gas flow, which was exited from the thrust, thruster nozzles, and that provided the thrust. For this, inside the spacecraft, we we had two separate tanks, uh, basically for balance purposes of the satellite. Um, and each of these tanks was under high pressure, and had a valve on it to close it off during launch. So it's very much like your barbecue tank, a, a big pressurized tank with a valve on it to keep it closed until you need to use it. And then we had a manifold of uh, pipes that led from those valves 
to 16 reaction control thrusters on the satellite that could create thrust in any direction that we needed. So, um, so in order to use this system, since we launched with those these valves closed to prevent the hydrogen from getting into anywhere, um, we had to open these two valves to allow the fuel to flow to the thrusters. And now these valves were not like the valve on your barbecue tank because they were, they were, uh, we sent a 50 millisecond pulse to the valve, the valve rotated and it locked open. And that was it, we could never command it to unlock. So that was a one-time thing. So that's why they were called latching valves. But, but they had to reach a certain point yeah. before they would latch. If they didn't open all the way, that's then they correct. wouldn't stay and open. That's where we'll get to in a minute. Um, so, um, so the first operation on the satellite, basically after we separated from the rocket was opening these two latch, latch valves. Now, we're gonna hear some tapes, I think, which um, are primarily those of the Communications Research Center team that was in the Goddard Mission Control Center. Um, for some of your listeners, they will they will know the names of Harold Rain and Bruce Aikenhead, who were uh, key player key players in the Allo and ISIS uh, program. And so they were they were you'll hear their voices on this these tapes. Uh, both of those gentlemen are now dead. Um, but it also includes novices such as Steve Archer, who was the RCF subsystem manager, and myself, who was flight director. Neither one of us had any flight experience before. And then there, then also on these tapes um, are some NASA personnel who, and the network people, the NASA network people who were responsible for uplinking the commands of the satellite. So nowadays, with all the computer systems that we have, you know, operators sit at a control console with nice uh, computer graphic interfaces and they, you know, they just press buttons on a keyboard and things happen. Not those days. So it was a very complicated process to send a command. So we would decide what command needed to be sent. And we would tell the NASA guy at the Goddard Center and the Mission Control Center, this right. is the command we want to send. He would then, by voice, yes. send the, the command, say, to the station at Guam or wherever it was around the world, say, we had the uplink to the satellite at the time, and say, send command XYZ. He would say command XYZ, and he would send it up. It would stay in the, command, in the satellite. The telemetry would come back down. We would verify that the command we'd asked for had, in fact, been the command that was sent. And then we would say, command verified. The guy in the, the NASA guy in, at Goddard would then say to the guy at Guam, execute. The guy at Guam would physically hold a button down and press it, and that sent the execute command. So that's how all okay. commands were, were sent during, using the NASA system. Yeah, and, and, and so there was a limited number of commands you could send. They yes, all basically correct. had a number. Before you, before you, as you were building the satellite, you had to decide, you, you know, you have whatever, a thousand commands that you can, uh, are, are the potential commands, and they each get a number, that's and correct. that's all you got. 
there's no reprogramming it. You got to select from the menu and issue yeah, one yeah. of those commands. And we all and, and a human and a human has to actually then press a button to keep that command. And we all had to learn how to speak in Oxal because that's the way the command. <laughs> ah. uh, uh, I've lost my Oxal days, Mac. Uh, <laughs> okay, so but. The other thing is that at this point in the mission, this is actually still the part of the mission that's supposed to be sort of routine. I mean, you know, going to space is never taken for granted, but this isn't the interesting part of the mission where we're testing all of those technologies that have never been tested before, right? Like, this is still getting there. So so we're not really on the edge of our seat yet, right? No. No, this is standard what we were doing um, until we got into um on orbit in the geosynchronous orbit and started to go into the three axis stabilization mode. the operation of the satellite was was standard to every geosynchronous satellite so we were spinning um we had an apogee motor uh, we had a reaction control system all this was standard in all geosynchronous satellites so it was nothing new nothing exciting okay well let's listen to the tape and hear what did happen okay so this tape that you're going to hear is our first attempt to open the last valve on tank one um, you'll hear this complicated process of sending the command and then near the end you'll hear steve archer the rcs manager declare that we have a major spacecraft failure uh, spacecraft ready to support switching to fill the uh, hydro tension lines with N2H4. Standby one. Thermal. Thermal is ready. Next event. Roger. RCS. Roger. ACS. Ready to go. Systems. Uh, ready. FC. SOM. Spacecraft is uh, ready. Uh, roger. Send command. Uh, two, yes. four, roger. two. Launch valve one open. Transmit. Command verified. Two, four, two is verified. Execute. Have you sent the command to open latching on one? Uh, that's affirmatively sent it. Roger, we have uh, seen a pressure change. Uh, we're checking that right now. Mike, not change state. Roger, we don't have a change in state on that flag, uh, but we do have a pressure change. Ottawa, this is AFD on spacecraft health. AFD, this is Ottawa on spacecraft health. Go. Roger, do you people show latch valve one open? No, we don't. Thank you. Roger, uh, this is a major uh, problem with the uh, spacecraft at this time. Well, I hate to do this to you folks, but that is where we're going to have to leave it for this episode of Terranauts. Tune in again for the next episode to hear how Mac and the team dealt with this potential mission-ending failure on what was, at the time, Canada's largest and most important space project. It really is a great Terranaut story, and you won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening today, and we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.